0: Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Dei Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we come to Psalm 61, and while we don't know a lot about the circumstances that every bit of it was penned after or out of, well, we do find a man who is experiencing basically what every last one of you in this room has experienced, every last one of us. Every last one of us deals with what I would call simply a fickle and a frail heart. Many of you have found yourselves at some point or another faced with this tension or battle in your soul where you start to question, what is it that I actually believe and why do I believe it? Others have been faced with this impossible decision. You know that as you just simply think through the ramifications of it, you wonder what the consequences may be and your heart again falters. Some of you have had your heart drop as you've received news that your life has just simply forever changed from that moment on. And all of you just like I have, have dealt with the waywardness of your own heart, where you are enticed after, you are craving after and lusting after the very things that you know the Bible would simply call idolatry and sin. In whatever way you may have experienced it, beloved, the reality is that you have dealt with with a fickle heart just like I have and just like King David has in this psalm. And chances are that many of you even today are dealing with that same exact issue. You know what is right, you know what is true, and yet it doesn't stop your heart at times from simply growing faint. It doesn't stop your mind from wandering down the road of all the what ifs and the what may be's or the what should have been's. But what if I simply told you today that your circumstances, your situation is not all that unique? And I don't even mean that in any kind of a cold way. But the reality of what I'm trying to talk about is simply that as your heart grows frail, it need not stay there, but you are not the only person who has ever been there. All you need in the end is just a simple reminder of what's true. And in our day and age, that's a hard pill for many to swallow simply because for some, there's actually a reason behind that. For some, the last time they had a trial, they had a well-meaning soul basically tell them the equivalent of, why don't you take these two Bible verses and just call me in the morning? For others, however, or at least most of us, I would add, the reality is that what we've bought into is this kind of this lie of a psychoanalytical worldview where we are more interested in the therapeutic, the feel-good, that which strikes our soul and tickles the fancy, so to speak, or itches the ears even. And it's more difficult to actually submit our hearts and our minds to the truth of Scripture than to listen to these things. And that's often why we forget. At the end of the day, no matter who you are, though, the simple reason that we have a hard time submitting our hearts and minds to the Word of God is simply that we do forget. We are creatures prone to forgetting. It takes hard, hard work to remember. And after even years of practice of walking with your God, you can still be the man or woman whose fickle heart goes out when you least expect it. And that is where I would ultimately say there is a difference between the one who who knows the truth and the one who remembers the truth. It is one thing for us to just simply know it, right? If we can regurgitate it as cold, hard facts, but it is another to remember the truth, especially when the times of hardship hit. To remember something that is true ultimately takes the knowledge of that truth and then applies it. It is not simply that we just recall the facts to our minds. In other words, when you remember, you not only do so consciously, but you do so that you might then walk by faith in that truth. And there's a radical difference between those two things. To merely know something doesn't involve the heart. But when you remember, you ultimately involve what's hidden in your heart. And so the question at the end of the day is simply, what is it that you've stored up in your heart? If what you've hidden in your heart ultimately is the Word of God, then that simple act of remembrance on those hard days will carry you through vastly immense trials because it is a life-giving experience rather than a mere mental exercise. The simple point I'm making is that more often than not, what we tend to do is we know the truth, but when the trials hit, when the temptations come, when sin entices, when the hard decision creeps up, we just simply don't remember those simple truths. Again, we forget. It's often, why though, is because we haven't treasured that truth in our heart. So if I were to give you an example, and I said something like, God is more gracious to you than you could ever know. What is it that comes to your minds? What response is triggered in your memory as you hear that? What scripture verses call to mind? Do you think of God correctly when you hear that? Do you think of the simple reality that God hears your prayers? That he actually delights to hear in your prayers. Do you think of God as the one who is your place of stability, your place of safety, your place of strength? Do you see him as your dwelling place? He is your sure refuge, the one who has always been faithful and will always be faithful, no matter what. Do you see that he will preserve you even by his faithfulness to the very end, so that way you will make it through this life and cross the finish line? Why? Purely because God is gracious. For some of you today, you can answer yes to all of those different questions, but I know for others here, you genuinely wonder. You genuinely wonder. You may believe it, but your heart is frail. It's fickle. And for some, you just need another reminder of what's true. And so my hope then is that as you all hear this sermon, as you all look at this text with me today, that you will come to treasure these things in your heart. You will come to see who God is and all that he has done in his graciousness, whether for the first time or for the millionth time today. And you would ultimately store these things up in your heart so that way when the day of troubles arise, you can call them forth yet again. And it is nothing new to you. It is nothing that you've not heard yet. I'll be preaching literally a full hour of something that you've all heard before, at least if you've been here for any length of time, but it's something I know that you need to hear. And it's something I know you need to hear because I need to hear it. And I need to remind myself of the truth. And I need to be the one who submits my mind and heart to the word of God. Why? Because I also forget. My prayer, though, is that you would be reminded of all the ways that the grace of God plays out in your lives and you would ultimately just simply be given the praise and glorifying of your heavenly father. And so with that brief introduction... I want us to now look at six ways that David reminds us of the grace of God in our lives. Six ways I would argue all of you know, but at one time or another you have forgotten that perhaps even today you are struggling to remember. The first would be that God hears the desperate cry of your hearts. The second, that God is your place of stability, safety, and strength. The third, God is your dwelling place. The fourth, that God has proven faithful to you. The fifth, that God will always prove faithful to you or he will prove faithful to you yet again. And the final one is that God will preserve you by his faithfulness. So now look with me at verse one where we start to see the very first way that the grace of God plays out in your life. God hears the desperate cry of your heart. Notice what David writes here. He begins, he says, Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint. And if you know David well enough, or at least you know many of the Psalms well enough at this point, you see that David's in much the same spot that he's been in before, isn't he? He's in a, a breaking point. He knows his distresses are there. They're starting to overwhelm him. And he speaks of these things as he cries out to his God in prayer. But notice how he cries out. He says, I cry out from the ends of the earth. And he cries out with a faint heart, or quite literally, a heart that is about to just simply give out and break, if you will. It's possible that David's looking at everything, that he's removed from the tabernacle. He longs to be back in Israel among where the Spirit of God is, and yet he can't, right? So that's one possibility. The other is that David is actually quite literally about to just die, I mean, we've seen that plenty of times with the Psalms so far, haven't we, where David has enemies pursuing him, David's been sick, David's sinned, and now the Lord's punishing him. Whatever the case might be, the reality is he might be fearing that he's about to go down into the grave. However, it could also just simply be that David is in a place of sheer agony and misery in his soul, that every aspect of what he looks at in life right now just continues to break him down, and he doesn't know how much longer he can actually withstand what's going on regardless of whatever the problem may be, you can see there's this urgency to his cries here. And right? I think that the psalmist leaves it purposely vague in that sense because then it then applies in a myriad of different so, or circumstances. But you can see he's a man who's in a state of turmoil. He's in dread. He's even in a state of sensing this severe gulf between him and God. And he says, I can't, you know, basically get over that chasm, if you want to put it in terms of how he's feeling, what he feels is ultimately miserable. He feels like an absolute wretch. So, I mean, picture this. You can see David coming into the church, right? And he, you greet him at the door and you're like, hey, David, how are you doing? He goes, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like I've been hit by a truck. That truck is now literally backing over me and I just feel absolutely miserable. I know the truth. I know the promises of God. I'm way down further than I've ever been in my life and I just can't shake it. Well, how would you respond to a guy like that? If you are that guy or that gal, how do you respond to your faint heart? What do you say? What I want you to do as we see this psalm just simply unfold is that all throughout it, all David does is just recall the word of God to himself. That's all he's doing. He's praying the word of God back to his heavenly father. He has a time of trouble that's come up. And so no matter what situation he may be in right now, all he's done is set his hope and his trust in the grace of God. That's it. There's nothing super fancy about it, nothing that you've not heard before, nothing that you've not read before or known for a long time if you've been in Christ any length of time. But he ultimately does so. Why? Because he knows God is one he can cry out to. Again, no amazing deep truth there, right? The point, therefore, is it's not so much the crisis, it's not so much the circumstances or even the faintness of his heart. The point is that God is the one he can actually go to in his time of distress. We see it. We see he's in despair. We see his heart is faint within him. His trials are overwhelming him. In one sense, he's just simply forgotten, and that's where he started. He needs to remind himself of what's true and what's right and what's lovely and what's good, what's of worthiness. Everything that I know so many of the ladies especially put into practice when they memorize Philippians 4, right? All those different aspects of who God is and what God has done, David just simply needs to remind himself of what's true and to submit his heart to the word of God and to bring his cares before his heavenly father. But it starts there. It starts by praying, right? It starts with this reality that he's able to look at his God and say, he is the one who sustains me and cares for me. Despite the temptation for him to possibly give up or to turn to something else for his hope, he looks at God and he says, this is the one I will return to. And a very simple reason for it is because he knows who God is. God is the one who has actually set his unique love upon his servant David. He's the one who cares for him the most. No other person in David's life loves him more than God actually does. No other person will remain faithful to him like God does, and God will. Everything and everyone else in all the world can depart and fail, but God never will. I think of all the different ways that life has just been hard or unfair, right? I mean, think of all the different things that you thought life would actually end up being, but it's come to this point, it's rather different than you thought it would ever be. So many more days you thought you'd share with your loved ones. So many days you thought you would share with your friends that have either just died or gone away because that's just the way of this life. So many goals or dreams or aspirations or hopes or things that you thought your life would become and yet they never happened. So many regrets. The choices you made that just still haunt you to this day. Some of you may look at it and you're like, well, the past doesn't haunt me so much as my present does. Life now is hard. Some of you are facing this. It feels like a constant battle, a constant assault. Every single direction, you're just getting pummeled, and you start to wonder little by little does God actually care? Does He hear my cries? Does He hear my prayers? It's my job to just simply remind you once more of what you already know today. He does. God knows your heartaches. He knows your pains far better than you even know it. He knows what fears you have, what doubts may creep in, what pain you hide from everybody else that you'll never share with a single soul. He knows what sins you're toying with that only add to your misery. He knows every bit of it, beloved. What you may feel, though, is not necessarily what is. You may feel all sorts of different things, but none of that dictates the truth. Your resolve must come to be placed in God and God alone. That's all David does here, right? He goes back to the foundation of what he knows is true. God actually cares to hear my prayers his heart's failing, he senses this big chasm between himself and God, and yet his resolve begins to steady. He he reminds himself of the truth. He knows so well at this point. God is the one I can lay my needs before. God is the one who will hear my prayers. God is the one who will prove faithful. He will answer my prayers, and even if he denies them, he is a good God. In every single aspect, he's able to look at this God and say, I trust him, right? It's a simple truth, But it's a truth that you and I need to return to every single day because we forget every single day. In the midst of times of crisis especially, you might sense now that there's no place to turn, no one to confide in, no one to trust, but that's not true. God is all of these things and even more to you, beloved, if you are in Jesus Christ. We think of God like he's a man, don't we? We think of him as if he's growing weary of our struggles, our constant prayers and requests. We're like, okay, we've asked for the same thing a thousand times, and instead of us going to a thousand and one, we say, uh, he he just doesn't care. God's impatient with us. We think that he will dismiss us like the fledgling child that you just want to get out of the room. But the reality is that at the end of the day, that's literally, quite literally in your head. The opposite is just the case. The Psalms as a whole prove this reality. David, time and time and time again, starts here in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, why? For I am in distress. I have those who are hunting me down. I have sin that's weighing me down. I have a wayward heart that's weighing me down. In every single aspect, David starts at square one. But all of Scripture attests to this same reality. God is the one we are to lay our cares before. All of our cares, Scripture says, and surely all means all. He is the one who has granted an audience with Him that we might actually come to him. I mean, think about that reality. Your heart might fail. You might sense this incredible gulf or chasm between you and God. But if you trust in Christ, none of that's actually true. If you trust in Christ, that gulf has been annihilated. You have been brought near to God. You have been made his friend where before you were his enemy and you have access to the throne room of God where you can bring your cares before him. You have direct access at any time. Now for David, that there was still that veil that separated him, right? He could not go in to where the high priest could. He could not go and touch the ark, right? You see that with one who... You know, Uzzah stands out, touches the ark, tries to stop it from hitting the ground, and he drops to the ground dead. He can't be as close as he possibly wants to the Spirit of God because he just can't have that happen. But the reality is that for every last one of you in this room, if you trust in Jesus Christ, the very Spirit of God dwells within you. What would kill you if you came too close to it before now resides in the heart of the Christian. Is that not just mind-blowing in one sense? But the point I'm driving towards here is that you have David who's separated in one sense and he can recognize that and you'll see that in verse four when we get there. But the, the ultimate question I'm trying to get you to see is if, if he heard the cries of a servant, David, will he not hear your cries as well? Will you not just go to your father? Will you not just go to your father in heaven who delights to hear your prayers who's given you grace upon grace, that though you might forget you have an audience with God, you always have an audience with God? That the truth of that reality does not change from day to day, it doesn't depend upon how you feel? All it's dependent upon is the goodness and mercy of your God. Think of the words in Christ, in Matthew 7. He says, "'If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts or good things to your children,' how much more so will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you have a need, ask your Father. It really is that wonderfully simple. For some, though, I think this is such a radically hard thing to wrap their minds around because of how we treat prayer in our culture. Many of us pray the same old things about the same old things, as Don Whitney would put it. Because we don't know how we should pray or how we should approach God. But all David does is simply take up the truth of who God is in his word and bring it back to God. You need not reinvent the wheel. He didn't need to reinvent the wheel. He came before his father with what was said by God, what was promised by God in his word, what was true and what was right and what was holy and righteous and good. But the only reason why he even came to God in the first place with all of that is because he started with this premise that God actually hears the cry of his heart. God actually desires to hear his prayers. He has an audience with his father. His father cares for him. His father loves him. He's been granted several privileges, several promises and blessings, and that one of them is that God will hear him in his time of need. Now, there's so many different roads to go down with the topic of a prayer, but the one I want to actually convey to you is just a simple one, one that you, again, already know. But all you must do in your time of need is go and ask your heavenly Father. But James talks about this reality. He just says some don't get anything because they don't ask anything. But is your Father not good? He knows what you need. He knows it better than you do. He knows it better than I do. Even as he denies some of your prayers, does he not supply you the grace in that denial? I think of all the ways that I prayed when I was a young Christian and all the stupid ways I prayed because there's just things that come into your mind and you think this is is it, right? And yet God denied me in that. And in that moment, sure, it was hard and sure, I didn't like it, but I got over it. And God blessed me in ways that were even far better than what I had in mind. Or he prevented me from going down a road that would have just simply been utterly foolish and destructive. There are ways that I believe that God will still do that. But through the midst of it, he continued to supply grace. He continued to show his care and his affection and love. For some, they they stop praying because they say, I know this is a good thing that I should pray for, and yet I don't have it. It's been denied. It may not be a bad thing you desire, but it might be something you even watch other people get that you don't get to have. For some, he'll say, you are cured, perhaps, whereas to others, he'll simply say, my grace is sufficient for you. And you may not understand it, but at the same time, does he not continue to supply that stream of grace? Does he not then still your heart and quiet your soul that you might be at peace with his will. That though you might be slain and though you might be miserable in many ways, you yet have joy and you yet have hope. For some, you might be here today at the highest point of joy you've ever had in your life. But for others of you, and probably more than than not, you're going to be at the deepest, darkest valley of despair. But none of that changes the fact that God's grace gives you access to him where you can actually bring your cares before him and he cares to hear them. He cares to hear them. That's grace, beloved. That's pure, unadulterated grace. Whatever state you may find yourself in today, the very first principle we're shown, again, is a very simple one that all of you know, that God's grace enables us to bring our cares before him, and he delights to hear our prayers. Again, a simple truth that all of us know, but we tend to forget. But what we also tend to forget is the reason why we actually should pray to God in the first place. That's what he now deals with in verses 2 through 3. He talks about this reality that God is our place of refuge. He is our rock, if you will, and everything else in this earth is sinking sand. Again, the second principle, God is our place of stability, safety, and strength. He's our rock. So, notice what David now prays in verse 2, or at least the second half of it. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Why? For you have been a refuge to me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Notice that David's request here is that God would actually just lead him to this rock that's higher than he is, right? He, he sees everything going around him at this time, and he's able to look at it. He's like, I, I don't really want to be here. I would much rather be on stable, higher ground, away from all this stuff. Again, it's a simple point he makes, but one we tend to forget in our everyday lives, especially when hardships and struggles happen, but that God is the one who's actually far removed from the constant chaos of this broken world, right? The world you and I live in is just in this constant state of ruin and groaning under the weight of sin. Everything goes wrong, at least in some ways. There's no aspect of our lives that remain untouched by sin, And yet what so often happens is that we find ourselves surprised when that reality comes to bear, when bad things happen. Yet what David is able to say here is that regardless of whether or not that happens, here's where I want to be. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I would argue that the reason we don't pray like this and the reason we tend to find ourselves shocked when bad things happen is that we've just simply forgotten that this life and this world and everything in it is not our home. It's not our place of safety and hope. It provides us with no real sense of peace or stability. In fact, the thing that we've forgotten when we forget that is simply that God himself is the only one who can do that or be that to us. When we face trials, they they provide us with a sense of sobriety. They cause us to truly see that every bit of life is not as stable as we were taught to believe, or at least as we've been led to believe, or seen inundated within every single aspect of our culture. What the weight of hardship and suffering does, though, is it, it pulls back that veil, and it just really reveals everything for what it is. It's a broken and distorted world. Every aspect, in one way or another, will just simply let you down. It will dash your hopes. If you're honest with yourself, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, you see it on a daily basis, right? Every bit of our world is literally designed to keep this reality of the curse in mind. Every which way you go, we have infrastructure built around this reality we call the curse. We factor in the fact that our clothes will fall into a state of disrepair because of the curse. We build our emergency funds. Why? I mean, honestly, why do do you build an emergency fund? For an emergency, right? You're planning for everything to go wrong. You're planning for things to be as they are not supposed to be or designed to be by God in one sense. We eat well, we exercise, we do every single thing we can, all the while knowing that every bit of that time takes us slowly and inevitably and inextricably towards our death. We know that. That's not me saying it's bad to eat well and to exercise. You should do those things. But the reality is, none of us are going to escape that day. And we know it. The brokenness of this world, the trials we face, also, though, in one sense, just simply reveal the preciousness of our God. His nearness to us, his care for us. The one who stands above the broken and distorted world. The one that we don't have to make a contingency plan with. He's not affected by the fall like we are, he's far removed from sin. He cannot be defeated by evil. In every single way, he is a sure refuge and strength, he is a sure foundation. Regardless of what may come against us or who may come against us in this life, nothing can assault our God. As David just simply looks at this reality, you can see his confidence is just starting to build, right? He's continuing to preach the truth to himself. When he looks upon this reality, he's able to say this for a simple reason, though. He looks at God and he's like, God has always been this strong shelter to me. He has always been a strong shelter, And so when he asks that God would lead him to this rock that is higher than himself, his request is ultimately one where he, again, asks that God would lead him. He's saying to God himself, you are the one who needs to bring me out of the muck and mire and place me on the solid ground. Where I'm at, everywhere I go, my steps are only leading me further into the muck, but you can take me and place me on the rock that is higher than I. Where does he pray that God would lead him? Again, to the place where he is safe under the protection of his God that he has an ultimate trust and hope in, in who God is. And that's what I would submit to you is the ultimate difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever can look at all of these different things and say, yep, I agree, that's what God is. And yet their hope and their trust and their faith is never in God in such a way to where they actually cry out to him. They actually trust him. They actually bring themselves to the end of themselves that they might rely on him. Think of this in light of even what we know. As, as Scripture calls Christ, all sorts of different things that speak of him in one way, shape, or form as a rock, right? He is the cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone, in fact. He's our rock and our redeemer. He is the one who is our sure foundation, right? Matthew 7, again, illustrates this perhaps no better than any other passage, but Christ himself is even referring to him himself in that way. He's speaking of the wise builder and the unwise builder, And the point he makes in Matthew 7 is that there is this fundamental difference between two different types of people. You have one person who hears, and then you have another who hears and does, right? So radical difference. The one who only hears and never obeys the teachings of Christ, he basically says, is just a consumer in one way or another. He's a man who will take the word of the living God under advisement. He picks and chooses his own religion, so to speak, and merely thinks of Jesus as just one of the many great moral teachers of our day and age. But he never sees him as the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, the one who is worthy of worship, the one who is worthy of trusting. So a man who only hears the words of Christ but does not act on them is not a wise man. No matter how much he may think, he is a wise man. And the reason for all of that becomes evident when the trials and sufferings of life come upon him, when the storm hits. Once the storm hits, everything he spent his lifetime building just simply comes crashing down to the ground, and his life is ultimately in ruins. But Jesus says that the wise man, the wise man hears and acts upon my words. So there's a radical difference between the two outcomes. The wise man builds upon a sure foundation, that is, the foundation of Jesus Christ, And when trials and sufferings of life come upon him, his life remains standing. Every bit of it remains standing. The difference between these two men is not that one somehow avoided suffering and the other got away scot free. It's not that one was an incredibly savvy and smart builder and the other one was basically a guy who should never pick up a hammer. Both of them get hit hard by the storm. Both of them endure suffering and hardship. It's built into the fabric of their world and and yours and mine. In the end, the meaningful difference is the foundation. And that's it. The meaningful difference is the person and work of Jesus Christ. One built upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. The other built upon the shifting sand. So when they both experience the same exact thing, only one's house remains stood, or standing, if you will. Any other hope than Christ will just bring you to that point. If you are the one who does not trust in Jesus Christ, you see what will happen. Again, I submit to you, that's the difference between a genuine Christian and one who is not. Christ's ultimate point is to get us to ask the simple question, what is the foundation of our hope? What are we building on? What do we love? What rules every aspect of our lives? What is the object of my hope? But the important thing to know with all of it is it's only revealed once the storm hits. It's only revealed after you've built your house. So what are you building on? What's your foundation? If it's Christ, when the storms hit, you'll still stand. Again, not because you're smart, not because of anything in you, but purely because of the foundation you stand upon. And if you're not in Christ, everything you have, along with you, will fall into ruin. The point, wherever you are, whoever you are, your foundation needs to be set upon the right thing. We need to be led to the rock that is higher than you and I. And the only rock that is higher than you and I, the only stability in this life is Christ himself. The only hope we can have is Christ himself. But I would also say to you, dear Christian, the one who knows where his foundation is, remember your hope. Do not forget. Remember you stand upon the rock that is Christ, that he is your sure foundation, he is your source of strength when you are frail, And if your mind and heart forget this truth, remind yourself yet again. Ask your heavenly father to simply open up your eyes to see that you stand upon the rock of ages who is Jesus Christ. Ask that he would never let you forget that fact. Ask that no matter where you go, no matter what life may throw at you, that your hope will be constant and fixed upon this one we call the Christ. the next simple truth about God's grace that I call you to remember today is, again, another simple one, one that's related very closely to the last. In verse 4, that God is our dwelling place and refuge. He says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So the place of refuge that David seeks is ultimately just in the presence of his God. Right? Notice what he's asking for. He does it in two different ways in verse 4. The first is he asks, let me dwell in your tent. So if you know your Old Testament well, you remember, until Solomon built the temple, there was no house of the Lord, right? Well, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, was put in a tent. So all David is asking for is to be able to go into this dwelling place where the Spirit of God is present, that he could be in God's presence, but he doesn't want to leave it. That's what he says here. It's not he's not talking about making a pilgrimage to go and see these things, just like every other Hebrew is required to do. He asks that God would let him dwell in his presence forever, without end. In every aspect he's looking at and he's like, I don't want to go. You know, by the very nature of his request, in one sense, you can see he immediately acknowledges that he doesn't necessarily have the right to ask this of God, because again, if you remember, you get too close to the Spirit of God in the old testament, what happens? Ask Uzzah. Yeah, you die, right? But David's like, I want to be in the very presence of the Lord, as close as I can possibly get, and never leave it. He doesn't have anywhere else in all the world he would like to be. Not merely because he's safe in the presence of God, but he knows that he finds intimate, undisrupted fellowship with his God. Think of it. I think of it in this way, right? It's like all the ways that my heart can grow cold or frail, even in the midst of daily life, let alone the trial or the hard times. Think of the days where you've sat down to study and you're reading the Word and in one sense you're like, this is just amazing, this is awesome. It's not been like this in ages. And even in that admittance, right, you're already showing you've had some bad days. Think of the days where you sit down to pray and then you find your mind wandering about pretty much everything else besides what you actually sat down to pray for and it has nothing to do with things you're going to pray about. Think of how much your mind wanders, your heart wanders. David says at all but he's like, I don't, I don't want that. I hate that. What would you give to simply be in the presence of God where your heart and your mind would be joined as one and never become distracted again? Never distracted by the cares of this life, the trials, the hardships, nothing. You're just you're there. You're basking in His presence, unified heart and mind with the God of this universe. The second phrase is conveys much the same imagery when He speaks of dwelling under the shelter of His wings. I want you to to think of that image. It's a it's an incredible image. It's a wonderful image. He invokes this, being much like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings to protect them, to provide for them. Right to Give them a place of safety and warmth and and care and comfort and love. There's this tenderness, there's this mercy that's on display because with his God, he actually has that tenderness and warmth and affection. It's not merely that I'm being protected by the storms, but ultimately, this is a God who loves me. This is a God who takes me under his wing. But we ought not miss the point of his requests in, in verse 4. He is literally talking of God as if he is his dwelling place, his refuge, the place that he can go to and be housed in, in one sense. Right? The idea is that he's, he can go to the one where when everything is wrong and everything is going the incredibly wrong way, this one is always kind and faithful and merciful and loving. In no way does God ever falter and fail or fail to provide him with the very comfort and protection he needs. And the same is true for you and I. He's so much more merciful and kind to us than you and I even think. He has set his love upon us in Jesus Christ, and that also—sorry—that actually means much, much more than you and I even give it credit for. Now think of it in one aspect we've touched on, where David is asking to be in the presence of God forever, right? He's asking to be among God's spirit that he may not depart from it. Again, I touched on this earlier, but you and I enjoy this in a way that no Old Testament saint ever thought of, or ever would have, in a sense. The Spirit of God doesn't hover over the tabernacle or the ark. You are not limited by time and space. At any single point of the day, you have direct access to your heavenly Father. But beyond this, the Spirit of God actually dwells within you, and he will never depart from you if you are a genuine Christian. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you have been granted a gift like no other in all of history if you've come to hope and trust in this one we call Christ. You will never have your comforter or helper forsake you and leave you. This same Spirit, again, is our helper. He nurtures your soul in the darkest of days, right? So those days where you feel like all hope is lost, who else is there but the Spirit of God? He helps you pray in those moments where you muck up all the words, just like I do, or your thoughts run astray. He can bring you back to focus, but the reality is that in every which way, the Spirit is your helper, even in ways that you don't think about as you pray. He causes your hearts and your desires to be changed so that you might pray for the right things. But also, let's say you're just the guy who at times is always bumbling through your prayers, If you're in Jesus Christ, the Spirit takes those prayers, takes them from a bumble-up prayer, and then transforms them into something that's pleasing and acceptable to the Father that he will actually honor. He sustains you day by day by the very grace of God that you do not apostatize or fall away from the faith. He preserves you, sanctifies you, ensures that you'll bear the very likeness of Jesus Christ, meaning every single day God is at work within your heart and mind and soul to bring you to be like Jesus. That's what he's just doing without you even necessarily being aware of it, right? Here and now he is doing that work. And again, he dwells within you. At no point will you ever be removed from your heavenly father or from the spirit of God or from Jesus Christ. Despite how you may feel on any given day, it will never happen. And it is purely by the grace of God. So what else then is God to you and I, but he is our dwelling place. He's our refuge. If all these things are true, where else do you go? Especially in your time of greatest need, especially in those days where your heart fails you, especially in those days where you do not sense that he is even near. Where else do you go but the very one who is the nearest he could possibly be, be to you? What David longed for, you have if you are in Jesus Christ. He cares for the aches of your soul, despite where others may grow impatient with you. He's long-suffering. You might toss and turn at night, wondering all the what-ifs, but the one who never slumbers or sleeps watches over you because why? He cares for you. Think of just all the different ways you can start to go down that road and, and ask of the ways that God shows his affection and shows his care for you. When you do that, you'll start to then just realize why David would say, what is man that you would even be mindful of him? Because if you're like I am, you know your heart. At the best of days, we're fickle-hearted. We're double-minded. We're not as faithful as we should be. And yet God still gives grace. And he covers us by that grace. He abides with his people. We abide with him. Nothing in all the world can change that if we have been brought into the family by Jesus Christ. Nothing. And so the question is not even ultimately of whether or not it's true, right? It's just the battle of the heart and mind that we have to face every single day. Nothing new, right? All stuff we've heard before, but all stuff we needed that reminder of, in many ways, you can see David is just doing the same thing for himself. He's he's counseling himself by the word of God. He's saying what's true, what's good, what's worthy. It's nothing new for him, nothing new for you and I. Just that gentle, needed reminder that God actually cares. How many times do you even think of that? I mean... I hope you're not like I am in this way, but I could I could tend to think of God as he's always angry and always upset with me for various different reasons. But there's that simple truth that we've heard from day one <clears throat> that God actually loves us and he cares for us. Despite all the ways that I can be a complete idiot, and I can be, I can be the greatest of one, just so you know, and the greatest of sinners, as Paul would say, that doesn't change. It's a truth that we all know is evidenced, even by God sending his one and only son to die, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that's a truth we forget, though, isn't it? Not that we've forgotten the cross. But we tend to put it in the terms where we were like, okay, well, sure, God will cover my sin. And God has been incredibly gracious to do that, but he doesn't really care about this thing. He's got better things to do. David's heart's failing him, right? He knows that. He can admit that. But he also knows where his confidence and his hope is. That's why he's a man of great faith. It's not because of him. It's purely because he can look upon his God... (laughs) Excuse me. It is purely because David can look upon his God and he has the utmost confidence that God is who he says he is. He can take God at his word. He says, even though my heart fails, even though all is not right in the world, if I am with God, all is right in my world. Nothing can strip me of God's love. Where God is, I'm safe. Where God is, I'm cared for. Where God is, I am covered by the grace of God. And so he just continues to counsel himself in that reality. You can see it. Look down again at verses 5 and 6. Notice how he just affirms that God has always proven faithful and will still prove faithful. He says, "For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name." So in verse 5, he's recalling this time where he made vows to the Lord. Right? We don't know what those vows or promises are, but that doesn't really matter in one sense. But what it tells you is actually quite simple. David had a need arise before, and he prayed to God for rescue. He made a vow. God rescued him. God heard his prayers. Again, simple truth number one, right? God heard his prayers. God answered his cry for help. And so David made good on his vows. Now, this could be referring to all sorts of different things in that second phrase when he says, you've given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. But I believe the best way to understand it is he's talking about what it means to just simply be a child of God in that sense. Right. He is a child of the covenant. He's been given the promises to Israel, but all of that would be included in what he knows up to date. It'd be Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, perhaps even the Davidic covenant at this point. So a unique special promise given to him that one would come on the throne and never depart from it. So David is able to look at all of these different promises that were given to Israel and say, the Lord has made them into a great nation. I'm part of that promise the Lord did give us the land. I'm part of that promise. The Lord has blessed his people and they've been faithful to uphold their end of the covenant under the Mosaic law. I'm part of that promise. That's what David's able to do here. But everything is under this auspice or uh, reality that he's one who fears the Lord. He's a genuine convert, a genuine believer. So he can look at all the benefits and blessings of what it means to be God's child and say, those are actually part of what I get to have. The promises of God belong to him. And he can see it. He can see how God has been faithful. But he can also see how God will be faithful again. He can look on all these different evidences. He can look upon the word of God and in essence say God will be faithful yet again. Verse 6. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations And in many ways, it's just a simple prayer or statement about him wanting a long life and long rule as a king. That's pretty typical, right? It's likely he doesn't have just himself in mind here, but these future generations that would come from his loins. He looks at his life, he knows, "I, I go the way of all mortal men, I die, and yet I know that God has promised this. I know that even right now, things are hard, right? He's literally asking for deliverance from his enemies in the first couple of verses of the psalm here. His heart is faint. He's far away. He's asking for deliverance in a roundabout way, and yet he can still say, I know the promises of God. I trust them. God has given a promise. <clears throat> God has given a promise, and God will prove faithful in The question, of course, is why? Well, for David, all he does is look at it and say, God's always been faithful, right? He's not going to prove faithless now. How could he possibly prove faithful, or faithless, rather? In every aspect, he's just looking at it and saying, the grace of God will prevail over whatever situation I may be in. Things may be the darkest and bleakest they've ever been in my life, and yet the grace of God will prevail because God's promises are yes and amen. David's able to look at it and say it that way. And I say in in many ways, that same principle is at work in your life and mine. You may not be kings and queens. I mean, last time I checked, none of you are, right? But the reality is that even though you may be ordinary people, you may never do extraordinary things, God's promises will never depend on stuff like that. At the end of the day, trials that come your way, the things that cause your heart to fail, cannot remove his promises from you or his protection from you. The what-ifs, the things that you wander down and wonder, how could life be different, cannot stop God's promises. They will not strip you of his grace. The hardship, the suffering cannot take the spirit from you. They cannot demolish anything that was given to you in Christ. So regardless of where you may be, the same principle is at play here. And the reality of what I'm trying to speak to is simple, that the grace of God will always prevail. God has been faithful. God will always be faithful. And so as we see the hardships come, all that does is show his faithfulness all the more. Do you see it that way? When the hardships come, when suffering comes, it proves that God has been continually faithful and that he will not renege on his promises. And then as you see those promises continue to come to bear, you're like, there he is again. Utterly faithful, just as he always has been. And again, the moment we see it no more clearly than any other is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? Christ is quite literally the, or the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Where David looks at it and says, I want to see and understand when all this might come to be. You and I have that revealed. Right? David has this promise of one who would come on the throne forever. You and I have seen the one who came to fulfill that. ultimately, what we see is that the promises of God in no way were diminished because sin entered into the equation, right? Sin could not defeat Jesus Christ, death could not hold him back in the grave, Satan could not thwart the eternal plan of God. In every single aspect where something came that was a threat to the life and promises of God, nothing in all in space and time could prevent it from happening. And the same reality is true for you and I, the grace of God will prevail. God demonstrated this most clearly because you and I have done everything in our power to screw things up because of sin. And yet, God demonstrated his love by again sending his son to die for sinners. The blameless one of all creation, the king of all the earth, humbled himself and became the true God man, died upon a cross, was buried in a tomb like a prisoner or a thief. He rose again on the third day and proved victorious over it all. And he redeemed you to the Father. He gave you his righteousness. One great day he will return and put an end to all that plagues us, and nothing will stop that. He will rule from the throne. So you can look at every single aspect of what goes on in life and just in general, but also your own life, and recognize that no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you may go through, God will always be faithful. He cannot be anything but faithful. It is quite literally impossible. So when you get your atheist friend next time that asks, is there anything God can't do? Yes. He cannot be faithless, for he would deny himself. The reality, though, is if we're honest, these are the same very core truths, even of the gospel, that we tend to forget most, aren't they? We fret. We try to fix things. We're given to mood swings of the wildest sort. Again, our hearts are fickle and frail. And all I have to say to you is, if that's you, just go back to the beginning of the psalm. Go back to this one. Go to the first verse and cry out to your Father in heaven. Cry out from the depths of your frail heart. Ask that he would lead you to the rock that is higher than you. Ask that he would be to you a refuge and a strength. Pray that you would dwell with him, that you would sense the activity of the Spirit in your life, that you would see and be able to understand his presence. Ask that you would take shelter under the refuge of his wings and be protected. Ask that he would remind you of his utter faithfulness to you. How all those different ways that you were not even aware of, he has been faithful. And then ask that he would give you the confidence and the eyes to see that he will always be faithful. And if your heart grows frail once more, even after you've done all this, do it again. And do it again and again and again and again and again. Over and over and over again. And even after your confidence is found, do it once more. As you do these types of things, a, a wonderful thing starts to happen Your problems don't always go away. Life can often just get harder. But at the end of the day, you start to see that every aspect of it is all of grace. Your hope and your trust is set in God. He will preserve you. He will sustain you. He'll give you the grace that is sufficient for each and every day. He will never turn you aside. And though you might even grow impatient with your own frail heart, he is the one who will never bruise or snuff out the smoldering wick. The simple final reality of what we get to in verse seven is just that other aspect of it where God will preserve you by his faithfulness, meaning that to the very end, he will ensure that you actually just make it. Again, look with me at verse seven. Final truth I want to remind you of today. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. At this point, David has his confidence set, right? He remembers God will not fail him. God will never has failed him. God will certainly never fail him again. He knows that the cry of his heart in verse four will actually come to be, though, right? He said, I wanted to be in your presence. I don't want to leave. I want to be there forever. So he says... He will abide before God forever. He looks with anticipation and faith to that day where he's going to be in eternal life, into the very presence of God, where he will dwell with his God without all the stuff that you and I have to deal with on a constant daily basis. But he also is wise enough of a man to know that that won't necessarily happen right away. He still knows it's going to happen, but that won't happen until the day calls him home, or God calls him home, rather. He's a smart enough man. He's read the scriptures enough to know that every bit of life is ordained by God. He knows also, though, how prone he is to just having a fickle and frail heart. And so ask or see what he prays. Right? Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve me. This is a struggle, I think, every single genuine Christian faces in life, especially as you grow more and more weary of this world. Right? You can look out, and you're like, man, I just want to go home. I just want to be done. There's some great things in this world, but let's be real. Right? But at the same time, if you're honest with yourselves, there's so much more that you want to experience before you go. I know I do. I want to see my kids grow up and into fine young men and women. I want to see them get married and have babies and all that other stuff. I want to... See, my wife get old and grow old with her. I want to preach and teach and pastor for as many years as I can. I would, literally would die in the pulpit if I could. But I also have far less noble desires that I battle on a daily basis because my heart stinks. I have indwelling sin. I have affections for things that are not good. I have evil thoughts and wayward thoughts. I have a near constant battle in my heart over the things that, as Paul puts it, I know that I should do or that I want to do, but I am not doing. That constant battle of the flesh. And I look at it all and I'm just tired. I'm just tired. More often than I'd even like to admit, I even forget the things that are truly worth pursuing in this life. But I'm tired. The thing I'm tired of most is sin. The thing I hate most is sin. The thing I hate and I'm tired of most is death. Oh, those great enemies, they screw everything up, don't they? I want to go and be with my Father in heaven, but I am not there yet. I have no idea when that day will happen. But I know my heart stinks. I know the good that I desire and I know that even in the midst of that good I desire, there's still all sorts of stuff running amok to mess all that up. I want to honor God. I want to use every waking moment for his glory. I want to praise him all the days of my life. So what do you do with that, right? Well, you pray like David does here. Preserve me, lead me, Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve me. David prays that God would actually just simply bring him to persevere, to make it to the very end. How? By his loving kindness and his truth. That word for loving kindness is that rich Hebrew word hesed, which just simply means grace. It speaks of God's enduring, faithful, covenant-keeping love that will never, ever fade or die or fail. God cannot and will not fail to uphold his promises. He has said it and he will do it. The second truth speaks of God's inability to lie or change his mind here. He's utterly steadfast, utterly sure, rock steady. He is a constant in a world that always changes, and therefore he is utterly trustworthy because he does not change. Again, he cannot and will not prove faithless in the end. He will uphold his promises. And so what David asks for then is just this wonderfully simple thing, isn't it? He's like, set these things before me and just guide me by them because I know how prone my heart is to frailty just as it was in the beginning. Don't let my heart fail. Don't let my love grow cold. Don't let me forget these things all the days of my life. To David, he looks at God and he sees in every aspect he is a sure and steady anchor for his soul. He knows that only through continued faith and trust could he actually find peace and comfort, especially on the day of affliction. But his desire is not that he would just simply have peace and comfort, not even that he would just have strength. His desire is ultimately that every waking moment of his life, he would live in such a way that God gets the glory. That's his consuming desire. That's his burden. That's his delight. He reflects on everything that he remembers and he he looks at it and says, okay, I'm going to recall all the truth that God has shown me in his word about himself and I've prayed it back to him and I know that all of this has to actually mean something. So what does it mean? Well, it means David's going to make another vow. Look at verse 8. He says, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. See, at the end of it all, David is in this position where he just sees in every aspect, God has been completely faithful and he is gracious in every single thing. David has failed time and time again. David is the sinner. David is the one who is prone to wander and disobey. He is the one who is frail. But God is not. He is a human being David, right? David is the one saved by grace and sustained by grace. And one great day he will be brought to eternal life by that same grace. God is the one who gives the grace. In all of life and death, David remembers one simple truth. It's all of grace. Every last aspect of it. And so he makes a vow, but what do you do when you can't really do anything at all? Because that's what grace is, right? You can't earn it. It's not like you can somehow repay it. No matter what you do in response, it's not like it's gonna earn you more grace somehow. Well, David just asks that he would <clears throat> excuse me, asks that he would be a man to sing God's praises forever, that he would pay his vows day by day. Just a quiet and faithful life that's it, it's radically simple, just a quiet and faithful life. The rest of his days, he sings of God's grace and brings him glory. And so at the final point of what I want to say to you today with all of this, and I'm not quite done yet, so don't close, but our case is no different. We're indebted to God in every single aspect of our lives. Every bit of it's of grace. Not one of you here today can lay claim to the fact that you've earned his grace, you cannot be the one who to have enriched your lives. Every single thing that you have comes from his hand. And you either give thanks for it or you do not. The very reason why you woke up today is because God gave you breath. The very reason why you're in church today is because God gave you the ability to even get here. The very reason why you may be a Christian today is only because God has sustained you so that you may continue to be a Christian. The simplest thing I can leave you with all of this is, what else do you do but sing his praises and just lead a quiet and faithful life? So let your life just be a simple reflection of gratitude to God for his grace to you in every aspect. When you look at that and what it means to be a son or a daughter or mother father, wife, husband, whatever, be faithful. Change the dirty diaper to the glory of God. Give thanks for good food and good drink to the glory of God. Lead a simple and a quiet life where you're always giving thanks, where you're always seeking to honor your king and obey his commands, not because somehow that gives you grace, but in response to the grace that was already given to you. And therefore, let your life ultimately be a faith-filled life where you remember, in spite of every other thing that may come at you, that God will never fail you that he will never desert you, and that if you are in Jesus Christ, you are safe. So for those, though, who are here today, who may not even be a Christian, who may not trust in Christ, my admonition to you is actually much more simple. That you would just simply cast yourself before your heavenly Father today for his grace and mercy. Recognize in spite of literally anything that you've done, and I do mean anything, and everything that you've done, all the ways that you've sinned, all the ways that you keep on sinning. He is a gracious God who richly forgives if you will come to him for grace. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You may sense your sins are far too numerous to be forgiven, but he will not turn away any who call upon him through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just come to him. Come to your Father who made you. Come to the one who, even though you reject him this day, he sustains you by giving you your life breath. Come to him and see that he will clothe you with the very righteousness of Christ so that when the Father looks upon you, he does not see every last sin you've ever committed, but he sees the very righteousness of Christ which covers you. And he will not judge you. He will not consume you in his wrath that he will, in essence, call you beloved from this day forth throughout all eternity and always envelop you in his grace. But you must come to him through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed an incredibly kind God, that even though we do not deserve your grace, that you richly give it. May we never forget how much your grace permeates every aspect of our life, may we never forget that we have a place that we can turn to, that despite whatever else may be said of us or thought of us or done against us, that you are constant, you are unchanging, you are unflinching in your resolve to just be a faithful God because that's who you are. I pray that our care and our troubles will be brought before you every day of our lives, that we would not forget who you are and what you have promised to us through Jesus Christ. I pray that for those who may not believe here today, that you would just allow them to see how rich in mercy and grace you truly are. And that as we all go home this week, that we would not forget. Oh, Father, we are prone to forget, and we are prone to forget every single day. But I pray that you would cause us to be upon our hearts and minds, that we would be a faithful people, a people rich in praise for all that you have done from this day forth until the day you call us home or return. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.